of Bears, the Bar and Beyond. And in this week's episode, we come to you from the nation's capital and the US Navy Yard. And our guest today is a Baylor Bear, a Texas Aggie. Second. Oh, oh. <laughs> and a Longhorn, but, but a Baylor Bear first and foremost, that's right? R- that's right. Uh, today's guest is Lu- Lieutenant Ben Maddox, and he is a JAG with the US Navy. Uh, and uh, we're, we're really pleased to have you here. Uh, you've also gone to the Naval War College. Yes. Um, started a, a lobbying firm. I did, yes. Uh, and there's a lot that we want to we wanna cover. So before, without uh, further ado, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I do want to say just I'm, I'm participating in this podcast in my personal capacity. So uh, this the information that I give does not represent the U.S. government, Department of Defense, Department of the Navy, and so on. But I do declare my love for Baylor and uh, <laughs> Texas A&M and University of Texas are both great schools, as well as the Naval War College. But my uh, I bleed green and gold. <laughs> great to hear it. Yes. Great to hear it. Tell us a little bit about uh, why, you, why you ended up at Baylor. What did you study? Mm-hmm. So I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and... Uh, you know, I, I'm 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 one of those legacy guys, and you know, at first I I didn't necessarily have my sights set on Baylor, but I I grew up grew up going to the university, and so I was familiar with the emphasis on Christian education, the emphasis on service, and you know, as I started touring around at different schools, Baylor just kind of it felt like home, you know, so. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a, a substantial scholarship there as well, so that was also that you helps. know that definitely helps, especially <laughs> with the cost of private school tuition. But uh, it really felt like home, and uh, so I got there in two thousand and two, and um, really just immersed myself into the school, uh, tried to be as active as involved as possible, and uh, I think like most freshmen, I went in as an undecided, so I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I was eighteen, but took a lot of different types of classes and kind of fell into political science. That mm-hmm. was my major. And then I had two minors, one in history, one in business. And uh, I, I really valued the the Bachelor of Arts degree, the liberal arts degree, and had a, a lot of great mentors on that path. And uh, I graduated in 2006 with a Bachelor of Arts in political science. How did, how did you find the mentors? Because I think a lot of students know, mm-hmm. hey, it's an advantage to have one. But right. how, how did you actually go about finding those mentors? Right. So I, I, I did a study abroad program in Spain, and uh, I think just through relationships and networks, I got connected with Elizabeth Vardaman, mm-hmm. who I think at the time was the either associate or acting dean of the Honors College. And I believe she's now an associate dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, or she's... Just retired. She's Oh, she just, just retired. retired. Oh, yeah. She's a wonderful woman. And I immediately sought her out after my study abroad experience, and we just immediately connected. I think that she she knew that I was very interested in public service, and she was the one that actually connected me to a Teach for America alumni who had gone to Baylor, uh, who was living in Los Angeles, and he was actually getting his PhD 
from UCLA. And that was actually my first introduction to Teach for America, kind of organically. I know they mm. do a lot of recruiting on their own. Um, but we just basically, she kind of became my life coach uh, for my <laughs> last two years. And I, I, I miss her. I miss talking to her. And we've traded notes throughout the years. But I would say that she was probably my number one mentor. My, my second mentor is, um, is probably Dr. Alton Hassel who at the time was the sponsor of Cap Omega Tau. I was a KOT, very involved in KOT. I was the president and uh, Dr. Hassel was the president. And so even though he was a chem chemistry professor, uh, he still probably wears the shirt, chemistry is a hassle. Um, <laughs> he was definitely a, you know, a transformative um, kind of professor to rely on uh, that really wasn't in the liberal arts kind of world, but just someone to lean on with like tons of experience. Mm. Um, and, you know, I just, I think actually another mentor I had was Dub Oliver, um, who, you know, through Baylor University circles has kind of been known here and there. I believe he's the president of East Texas Baptist uh, right now. And he's actually a Texas A&M grad, but at the time he was dean of student development at Baylor. And then he eventually became vice president of student life, I think, after I graduated. But he's been a resource for so many students uh, over the years. And I definitely relied on him and his mentorship, uh, you know, while I was there at Baylor. We, we will talk about um, some of your graduate work in a second, but after being at Baylor, you went on and did Teach for America. I did. I did. Uh, I think a lot of students feel a, an unspoken pressure to go to law school as soon as they humanly can. Oh, 100%. Um, can you walk us through why you decided to go and do Teach for America and then talk about perhaps how that helped you later on mm -hmm. down the road? Because it was a significant influence on your life. It was a, a hundred percent. It was a transformative experience in my life. I, I joined Teach for America. You know, it's it's very selective, and I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to get in. But I will say that it was, like I said, transformative, and it kind of helped shape me uh, to be the man I am today, and and kind of guided me along my path into the U.S. Navy. Uh, which I didn't expect to be in, you know, let's be <laughs> honest, when I graduated Baylor, uh, an easy path to the military is you join officer candidate school and you yeah. can go in that way. But I, I wanted to, um, you know, I thought teaching would be fun. And I also thought that uh, education and education in the United States is very important. It's kind of the foundation of kind of where we all come from. And Teach for America was um, a really difficult experience. Uh, you know, being in the classroom, I also taught special education was was challenging, especially as someone who had um, who was a political science major in the background was kind of a social studies, and I expected to be in a social studies classroom, but actually was in an algebra classroom huh. with special needs students, and so you're kind of thrown into the fire, and it depends on you know if you're teaching high school or elementary or middle. I taught high school in the Rio Grande Valley in a great family town called Donna. Uh, in between McAllen and Harlingen, and I had a wonderful experience. Uh, the teachers there took me in as part of the, uh, as part of their family, La Familia, and I also was able to coach football and basketball, which was also an amazing experience outside yeah. the classroom as well. And really, the focus was academic achievement. You know, uh, bringing up um, students uh, from low income communities and helping them succeed. And so, uh, you know, I poured my heart into it. I loved teaching. But overall, I, I kind of was always interested in public policy, and, and I there it was hard because I wanted to stay, but I also was being pulled in a different direction, yeah. and that's kind of the direction and where I am today. But 
I 100% recommend Teach for America. I'm not a Teach for America recruiter, although I will say my wife is. <laughs> so if anybody out there is interested in doing Teach for America, contact me and I'll get you in touch with my wife. Um, but it's a great organization. You're uh, connected to a huge network of people, just kind of like an alumni network. And I'm a little bit unique because the mo majority of people that are involved in Teach for America stay in education. So mm -hmm. they stay in the education space, either as teachers, as academic instructors, as principals, as people that work in education policy. And I do, I miss it. I miss being a, like out of the education space. Um, but I'm kind of tangentially connected because of my wife. Yeah. And I'm still very involved in Teach for America uh, efforts. I'm I'm on the advisory kind of board of the Teach for America Military Veterans Initiative, uh, which is kind of a unique initiative between uh, individuals who have uh, participated in Teach for America and who have also served the U.S. military. So that's kind of where I'm putting a lot of my focus now. Hmm. And it, it seems like, so I mentioned uh, a certain school and college station. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it sounds like Teach for America influenced your decision to go and, and study uh, public policy and administration. hundred percent. There. Right. My second year, I was I was interested in, in quite a, a few policy schools. And, um, you know, the Bush School wasn't very well known nationally. And a lot of its focus was actually on international affairs. And the school has just grown tremendously in the past decade. And the great thing about Texas A&M was... Uh, its connection to President H.W. Bush mm -hmm. and kind of the, the role and the focus that he put on public service and public servants. Um, and, you know, the school, like most schools, they always try to balance the, the research focus with the kind of the practical nature of getting their, their getting graduates jobs, right? Yeah. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed my time at the Bush School, got connected to, you know, a lot of different people. I learned a ton about public policy and was very challenged as well, especially in terms of my writing. Yeah. Because even as a teacher, as a math teacher, I wasn't doing a lot of writing. And they actually had an assigned writing specialist at the Bush School. Because a lot of what you do as a policy analyst or a public manager is you write. Um, you write about policy, you write, you analyze policy, and that's all writing. Um, so my writing skills were, were perfected there in a, in a unique way, which is different than legal writing as well. Mm. But when I went to Texas A&M, that convinced me that I needed to go to law school. And that kind of was my first thought of, you know, maybe maybe law school is the kind of completion of my academic interest and career. And so I remember I was like, I'm going to take the LSAT one time and I'm going to try to you know, get into a top school and we'll, we'll see what happens. Can you know? I take you a step back? Mm -hmm. So sure. you said your time at A&M really influenced your decision to go to law school. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that a little more for us? What is it about that experience that made you think, okay, the next step for me logically is to go to law school? Mm -hmm. So we had an intro to public policy class by Dr. Deborah Kerr. And, you know, she would always say policy is law, law is policy. They're so interconnected that... Um, you know, there's a part of me that was like, well, maybe I should have applied to a joint program that was, you know, an MPA or an MPP with a JD, and you could do that in three years. Texas A&M didn't have a JD program. However, I, I thought it would be, and I actually wrote this in my like personal statement of law school, I thought it would be a perfect blend of the two. Hmm. And in a lot of ways it is. However, it also depends on kind of what your end goal is. Your end goal is to go to law school and make a lot of money, which is why a lot of people want to go to law school. Yeah. There's not really a need to, to learn about to get your master's in public policy. 
But if you're interested in maybe working in the public sector, I do think um, there there's it's like two different types of skill. And that kind of relates to what I do now as opposed to some of my friends who went to law school and they are working for law firms and they're doing different types of work. But that's kind of the beauty of law is that there's a lot of different things that you can do. Mm. Most people just assume you're either doing, you know, criminal trials in a district attorney's office or you're doing commercial litigation, you know, representing big companies and insurance, you know, or, or private individuals. But that's not always the case. There's a lot of other jobs available for lawyers that I think a lot of people don't realize. Yeah, so and you don't have to be in the courtroom every day. No. <laughs> no, you know, yeah. and most people aren't. Most no, that's, aren't. that's exactly right. If yeah. you want to do that, you go be an assistant district attorney in a county in Texas or wherever, and you will be in the courtroom all day long. But that's not, that's not for everyone. Yeah. So. What, uh, what is the enduring memory of your law school experience? Was it just the sheer increase in workload, or do you feel like the previous graduate work you'd done had prepared you for the amount of work that you'd have to handle? Yeah, that's a great question. So there, it's it's kind of the same, but also different. So I do remember, you know, tons of reading, tons of writing, and everybody's like, well, you got to get these outlines, these yeah. 40 page single spaced outlines, right? And you get an outline from a, a student in the previous class and then yeah. you, you massage it to your own, right? That's actually not the best way. And actually, I remember when I toured uh, one law school, they were like, we don't allow computers. Or, or, or I think they said the most effective way for you to actually retain knowledge is with like a pen and paper. Yeah. It's not with your computer. Actually, it was my my civ pro professor at the University of Texas. He didn't make us put our computers away, but he said, if you really want to um, comprehend what's going on, put your computer down and uh, just use a pen and paper. And I wish I would have done that. <laughs> I, I, like everyone else, I had my computer up typing as fast as I could. Uh, and, and actually, that is one difference because in these classes in law school, pretty much 95% of the people have their computers and mm -hmm. they're writing notes as a part of their out. They're creating an outline or they're using another outline to, uh, to make it better. Um, whereas in, at, at Texas A&M and at Baylor, we weren't just, you know, writing notes as fast as we can yeah. in my public policy class. It was more of a, uh, kind of like a philosophy type thinker seminar type class mm. where it did seem that law school was, it was like everyone was a gunner. Yeah. You know, everyone was trying to out-compete everybody else. And I think that has to do with the curve, right? Everything is scored on a yeah, curve. Yeah, that's right. And that's not necessarily the case at, at Texas A&M. There's no curve there. Yeah. Um, or so, even, even your undergraduate experience. That, that, that's right. So um, in addition, at Texas A&M, there, there was also, or I'm sorry, at University of Texas Law School, as they do for a lot of law schools, is they had their own separate like grading process. Mm. So it's different than like the UT graduate school. One of the things I did do was because I was interested in lots of other things. I took some classes at the education uh, department, and I also took some classes at the business school and the OBJ school because I think it was like 90 hours total. So I got to take, I don't know, 20 hours of classes from outside of the law school as well. So bottom line is it is a similar experience, but it's not the same. And I think it's because of the competitive nature and because of also just the the sheer workload, but actually there is one more thing. Um, that he, you take one exam 
and that's a, a transition, right? So in most of my policy classes, we would have like usually like a research paper that's 20 to 25 pages. Y you might have a couple. I remember my public budgeting class, we actually had a paper every week. I mean, it was just like two pages yeah. um, in addition to an exam and then probably a paper. It was always a mixture, kind of like an undergrad. Mm -hmm. But in law school, it is like you're going to learn this stuff for four months and you've got you've got three hours and good luck. Yeah. And so it just it creates a more stressful environment. Uh, and, and it's more than just remember and regurgitate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's yeah. analyze. I remember my torts class. I thought I had every single thing. Just like I had it all. I studied for days. <laughs> and I came back with my grade. I won't say what my grade was, but I was like, really? Like, I thought I did so well, you know? <laughs> uh, I know that feeling. But, but, but you know, it University of Texas is a great school, and there's a lot of quality applicants that, that get into that school, so it is more competitive. But I remember I, I went to go talk to my professor after the fact, and I was like, I thought I had everything, like every tort, every issue that I spotted in this fact scenario, I thought I nailed. He was like, well, you may have, but you just didn't describe it in the way that was like clear for the reader. You may have done this one correctly, but this one not, and then you're you know, your other student or your competitor, you know, yeah. may have described that in an eloquent way. So you're on a time crunch as well. So you got three hours or two hours or whatever it was. And so, you know, it, it also is a training ground for working under pressure, mm. um, you know, and, and also outworking your peers as well. So, um, you, you know, and, and that's not like every single law class, but that's mainly the first year. There are a, a lot of classes that seminar classes where I would just write a paper. Like yeah. I had an environmental policy class where I wrote a paper on Texas water policy. Um, and then some other classes, like my property class did have, you know, I don't know, five short answer and then 40 multiple choice. But it just kind of depends on the type of class that you take. But it is definitely stressful. And that's why most people say law school is not very fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it sounds like, too, the graduate work that you did at A&M helped in many ways get you acclimated to that that increased expectation. It did. I was kind school. of already set in my like academic mindset. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it probably would have been more of a struggle for me to go from the classroom, maybe straight into law school. But uh, I mean, from teaching in Teach for America. But I do think that, um, you know, law school is also not for everybody. Yeah. You know, and I think we, we I, I definitely know some people who, who got there and then they dropped out after the first semester. And I think there are a lot of students out there I know this is a pre-law podcast that mm -hmm. that maybe think they want to go to law school because it's a prestigious path, or they think they want to go to law school because they want to let, make a lot of money. And I think the best way to really learn about it is by doing like internships when you're in um, you're in undergrad, uh, or work as a paralegal for a year, because um, there's vast different areas of law to practice, mm -hmm. and so I, I do. I have found that some of my colleagues and friends are, they're not satisfied in their jobs as lawyers. Yeah. You know, whereas me, I love my job as a jag. Yeah. I love being a. I never thought I would be a lawyer, and sometimes I think, well, I'm just a military officer today, and then tomorrow I'll be a lawyer. It's kind of a unique position. However, I do think that there were forty to fifty percent of the people at University of Texas who were who came in immediately after undergrad. Mm. And I think about probably 10 to 15% of those people were maybe shouldn't have gone straight yeah. into law school. Um, so it's a tough question, but the, the best thing to do is to, 
have conversations with lawyers. Go pick, sit pick in with them. Pick up the phone. Pick up the phone. You know, yeah. actually, when I was in Teach for America, I I was really interested in legal aid, and I know a lot of people uh, don't have the means to afford lawyers, and there is definitely a role that legal aid plays in the United States, and so I had a, I had two friends that that worked for Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid, and and I shadowed them for a day. I just took a day off of work on like a Friday while I was teaching because I was like, I'm kind of curious about yeah. what you do. And it was a great experience, you know. And then I, I did. I, I remember taking one half day off or we got a holiday or a work day or something. And I just went to the courthouse in Edinburgh and I just kind of poked my head in a couple cases and yeah. just was kind of seeing what this was about, you know. Uh, so I think if you do that and you have conversations and you listen to podcasts like this, you'll get different perspectives on, hey, is this the right choice for me in terms of like a professional career path? Yeah. I do want to jump into your naval career in a second. Sure. But uh, tell us a little <clears throat> bit about what you did straight after law school, because you didn't go from law school straight into to private practice or even straight into the Navy. Right. So during law school, I had a really unique opportunity to... Uh, to do some consulting or some educational advocacy, you can call it lobbying, and it was really just based on my brief experience at the at the Texas Capitol and uh, a partner of mine um, who also worked at the U.S. Senate, sorry, the Texas Senate, and we were very interested in educational um, equity and and advocacy work, and we got connected with with a group of people, and so we um, we helped write a couple policies and. We advocated at the Capitol, and I kind of did it on the side while I was in law school. I was just crazy busy working all the time, <laughs> writing legal memos while I was like sitting on the floor of Texas Capitol, like committee hearings. And, um, you know, it was a great way to help pay for school and also get some uh, professional experience as well. Uh, you know, the funny thing is, I took corporations my summer of my first 1L summer, which was unusual to do like summer school uh, in the 1L, but I wanted to work at the Capitol the mm -hmm. following spring. One of the benefits about the University of Texas Law School is a relationship with the Texas uh, legislative session. So they have lots of interns working there. And, and that was one of the things I wanted to do. And, and you know, uh, this kind of uh, opportunity just kind of came and uh, we created a, a space uh, for ourselves as both former teachers to to go and advocate for uh, teacher policies, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun. It was very difficult. It was very political, um, but it was a uh, it was a great experience for me. So I didn't do the typical law school path where you go work for a law firm and they pay you twenty five thousand dollars, and you know it's it's going to be all it's all it's going to be all great when you come work here as an associate. I didn't do that. I I yeah, I started my own business with uh my co-partner and we worked on education advocacy issues for basically a year and a half to 2 years while I was in law school. And so it was kind of a fun cuz it it was it was almost like I was working uh in like a startup environment. Yeah. But it was also very competitive too cuz at the time I was still only 28 years old and, and you're in law school. And I was in law school, right? <laughs> right. So I, I took enough classes to continue to be full time at the university, but I yeah definitely just wor worked 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 a lot. <laughs> so. so how how did you pivot from from that to officer candidate school and mm -hmm. and the navy? No, that's a that's a great question, and people ask me this a lot. I just thought you know I I was I was working as my own lobbyist with with my friend Candace and. Um, 
you know, to really be an effective advocate, you really need experience working either at the Texas legislature or at the U.S. Capitol, you know, knowing the rules, knowing the people, being in the system. But I had had this tugging feeling kind of basically since I was 20 years old about military service and public service. And, um, you know, the, the, the JAG community, the Army and the Air Force and the Navy, they just kept coming to the law school. And it, it was always at the back of my mind. So when my partner kind of wanted to go another direction, she was very entrepreneurial and, and she had a couple other businesses. I kind of came to an inflection point of, do I keep doing this by myself? Do I try to maybe go work for a state senator or maybe the attorney general or the governor of Texas stay in that Texas state policy world? Or do I maybe take a risk and, you know, jump outside the box, finally leave Texas mm. and maybe try to join the JAG Corps? And, you know, it's a four-year commitment. So at the time I was like, I can do my service and I can always come back to Austin and work in educational issues or other state policy issues. And I just, you know, I thought the risk was well taken. And fortunately, I was I was able to to get selected in the fall 3-0 board. And I, I remember I had 10 days to make a decision. I didn't know anybody in the Navy. I didn't know anybody in the JAG Corps. And I mean, here's what I did. I don't know if I told you this before, but I got on LinkedIn and I just like Googled as many like Navy JAGs as I could. And I wrote a messages and I was like, Hey, my name is Ben. I'm at UT Law School. I just got into the Navy JAG Corps. Do you have five minutes to chat? <laughs> and honestly, they all got back to me. Yeah. They were like, yeah, I'll talk to you about the JAG Corps. And they all were like, it's great. It's awesome. There's all these really cool opportunities. You should definitely do it. And, you know, I probably should have done that beforehand, cause, but I didn't know if I would get in or not. And yeah. then, yep, took the risk. And at the time, I was dating a, a, dating a gal and... <laughs> I said, hey, I think I'm going to join the Navy two months later. Hey, do you want to get married? <laughs> anyway, so I, yeah, I took the risk and I think it's been uh, it's totally worthwhile. I've passed my four-year commitment now and I do miss Austin. Mm -hmm. I also miss Waco too, you know. <laughs> Good save. Good but save. I, <laughs> I do, I do miss Austin and, you know, I can all, you know, I can always serve you know, for a few more years or, you know, a 20 or make it an entire career till 30 and then come back to Austin or come back to San Antonio where I'm from or, yeah. you know, maybe something else. So it's kind of widened my opportunities and I'm just really glad that I kind of, I put myself out there and I took the risk and I think it's been worth it. So I think the life of a JAG is, is not something we see a lot of in media other than a handful of television shows and films. Mm -hmm. It's pretty it's pretty narrow. So tell us, what is it that a JAG does? Um, well, we'll say this. So A Few Good Men Great is, is the main movie, right? Yeah. If you haven't seen A Few Good Men, you got to go see it. Jack Nicholson, young Kevin Bacon, uh -huh. young Tom Cruise, and young Demi Moore. I yeah. mean... It's it's yeah it's a it's a great film and then you know there was a TV show called Jag I think in the early nineties I do remember people that. now don't even know what it is but my grandmother has seen I think all of the, <laughs> all the episodes it was primetime television when right. I was growing up so a lot of people don't know but the show NCIS was based off the show Jag and now NCIS is you know so popular with all their different iterations but um, Jag means Judge Advocate General so. Uh, I believe it was yeah created about 50 years ago, a little over 50 years ago, as the kind of military discovered the need for 
actual attorneys to be involved in courts martial, uh, which are military trials and kind of other legal processes and procedures. So essentially what we do is we kind of we kind of provide three things in three areas. One is national security law, which which entails advising commanders on law of the sea and law of armed conflict and uh, kind of punishments for officers and petty officers, enlisted personnel. Another is um, legal assistance. So we are kind of uh, like a legal aid for the military, and we also provide services to dependents and retirees, and we'll write a lot of wills in terms of uh, looking at their estate. So uh, we do we provide legal assistance services. Um, a lot of it deals with like landlord and tenant issues when people go on deployment. Mm-hmm. Where are they going to put their car? You know, is their car towed? You know, what are the laws that can help them. Um, and then the other, the third aspect is military justice, which is uh, basically um, court, court martial, courts martial, which are military trials. And military trials have been around since George Washington. I mean, they've been around probably since the Romans, but in the U.S., uh, the U.S. government, um, you know, the court martial process through the years has undergone, uh, undergone a lot of transformation and we all abide by what's called the UCMJ, which is the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And a lot of times, um, we are we're kind of just looking at everything: uh, assault, sexual assault, um, uh, lots of uh, <clears throat> lots of offenses. Basically, any offense that you can think of that a district attorney would take, we take it. But it has a military bent, and the military bent is kind of the connection to good order and discipline for uh, commanders to keep that good order in charge of their particular unit. So JAGs will serve as uh, trial counsel or government prosecutors. will also serve as defense counsel as well. And then once you get to a more senior level, we will uh, uh, preside as military judges. So that is also kind of a unique path as well that is kind of one of the unique things about the U.S. military and the Navy. Is it, uh, do you need to get it to a certain rank before you'll start presiding over cases? I believe, I believe in the U.S. Navy it's 05. Okay. I think you can preside as a judge in the Coast Guard as an 04. But predominantly, it's 04s and 05s. So 05 is a, a commander, a Navy commander. Um, in the Army and the Air Force and the Marine Corps, it's a lieutenant colonel. So that's and the just to take a step rank. back, so the mm-hmm. O scale is the officer scale, the E scale is the enlisted. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. That's right. So I'm an O three, so I'm a lieutenant, and a lot of times people get that confused with the Army, Air Force, and Marines because the O one for those services is a second lieutenant, then an O two is a first lieutenant, and then their O three is a captain. But in the Navy and the Coast Guard, a captain is an O six, which is the equivalent of a colonel. And so people get that confused. A Navy captain is actually a really, it's a, it's a high rank. It's a senior rank. But an Army, Air Force, Marine captain is an O3, which the, is the equivalent to lieutenant. The best way to learn about the ranks is just to go to Wikipedia because it's very <laughs> confusing. Yeah. I have a chart on my wall with all sorts of military items. Um, there's another unique thing about the, the Navy, which is in regards to ratings, which kind of makes us a little bit more uh, unique. But... Anyway, I'm an 03. Judges uh, predominantly have to be 05 or 06, so that would be commander or captain. What was what was basic training like? Because I think people have uh, 
a stereotypical image of what that's you know lots of being yelled at lots of push-ups and pull-ups right in your face right? yeah 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 so so tell us what that was like for you as a, a coming in as an officer and coming into the jack corps sure so so when people say basic training that's typically referred to like the army when you're enlisted you're going into basic training and you're going to become a soldier in the navy there's a couple different ways we call it boot camp Right, so we're going to go to boot camp. Boot camp is actually north of Chicago in this cold base called Great Lakes. So that's where every Navy sailor goes. Um, for officers, there's a couple paths. You could do ROTC, which is the Reserves, uh, Reserve Officer Training Corps, which Baylor has the Air Force, mm -hmm. which my dad did back in the 60s. Air Force and, and Army now, too. Oh, Army, too. Yeah. yeah. And then um, you could do Officer Candidate School which is basically a three-month commissioning program. To be commissioned, that basically means that the, the, the president or the secretary of defense, you know, signs your commission and you are, you know, an officer in the U.S. military. It's, it's basically a piece of paper saying you're commissioned, but it takes a while processing medical stuff. Um, so ROTC, OCS, and then the other route is the academies, like the service academies, like the U.S. Naval Academy, U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Um, when you graduate, you'll become a commission officer and you go to your assignment. So I'm a staff corps officer. So a staff corps officer in the Navy is someone that assists the line officers. So staff corps is the people that are supporting kind of the warriors, right? So I'm a lawyer, JAG, attorney. Um, other staff officers are chaplains, nurses, doctors, uh, positions like that. So we go to a modified school called Officer Development School. So it's not as long, 12 weeks. We don't have to shave our heads. Uh, <laughs> it's a little close to the bone. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to shave our heads. But it is, it is very intense. They do, you know, get in our face. And, and we're, we're all a little bit different because we're all a little bit older, whereas most uh, people going into officer candidate school are usually 22 or in their, their early 20s. Because you've had to get that professional qualification first, right? That's, that's, that's correct. Yeah. Um, so we go to officer development school, and that's five weeks long in Newport, Rhode Island. So, you know, we definitely had to wake up at, you know, 4.30 and do push-ups and sit-ups and all that kind of stuff and run around and uh, hoo-yah and all that, uh, you know, put the uniform on, everything. And uh, it, it was a great experience. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I would probably do it over again. I don't know if people would. but <laughs> So it, for all, all, all different specialties, so you go to your officer school or you go to boot camp and then you go to your, like, training school. Uh, so, like, what job you're going to do, right? So, JAGS, we all go to this school called Naval Justice School. And it's 10 weeks. It's also in Newport, Rhode Island. And it's basically, like, how to how to write a will and how, how to be in the courtroom for a court-martial and what the processes are and procedures for, um, you know, a lot of different things. It's, it's learning about different areas of the code that you may have not learned in law school. And I'll be honest, I didn't know anything about military justice. I mean, I knew nothing. But that, that was your time and experience to learn. So it was almost kind of like another semester of law school. Oh, law school, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, but it was fun. You know, we were in Newport. It's a fun little town. We were there for the fall. There's a lot of things to do and uh, great little community of people. So we were there. I was there with the sea services, which are the Coast Guard and the Marines. So there was about 40 of us total. And we call it the basic lawyer course. Mm -hmm. And then once you complete that, then you go to your uh, your first assignment, like officially. So... That was kind of my chart or my pathway. There is a path if you are like an active duty um, officer in the Navy where you can apply for the law education program and the Navy will pay for you to go to school, which is a really great deal. It's very competitive. Mm 
um, so they don't have to go to officer's uh, candidate school or development school. They just go straight into Naval Justice School. Tell us a little bit about what those first 18 months to two years looks like, because for folks who have started to do that process of talking to lawyers, they're going to they're hear about different experiences. So you might go to a large law firm, and that first two years, you might not really get a lot of client interaction. You might not get any court time. Others are going to go to smaller firms or into public service where they're going to get thrown in very quickly. Mm -hmm. What did that first 18 months to two years look like as a as a junior JAG officer? That's a great question. So about five or six years ago, the U.S. Navy JAG Corps decided to um, create a first tour judge advocate program. And I always kind of describe it as um, a program that's similar to a medical residency. Now, I'm not a doctor, but... What they do is they rotate you your first two years in four different areas uh, to get experiences in each. Actually, now it's a little, it's slightly changed now. So I'll, I'll talk about how it is now. But you basically spend six months in the command services department, which is the advising kind of commander's department and um, help, help them with ethical issues and misconduct issues, um, all, all sorts of things that commanders, it's like a, being like an in-house counsel for the military. Mm. And then you spend another six months doing legal assistance, and that could be, you know, writing a will for a sailor who's about to go on deployment. That could be, you know, representing uh, a dependent with maybe a divorce, um, which are always sticky issues, but yeah. definitely learn a lot about that. And then the last year, it used to be you would spend six months in like the trial department uh, prosecuting and then six months in the defense department. Now they've switched it where you will either stay in trial for one full year or you'll stay in defense for one full year. So the defense office is a separate command. So there is a clear line. A lot of people call it like a big giant wall. Mm. There's a clear line of, you know, you're either working for the government or you're working for the defense. Um, a lot of people think that's kind of weird, like, oh, you're in the military and you can work both sides, but it's not really like that. You're assigned either as a prosecutor for three years and then you're either new job or what you could do is you could be assigned to a different command and work as a defense counsel. So in your first program, that may be possible where you could be a command services attorney for six months, legal assistance for six months. Then you would be assigned to a different command for the year working as a defense counsel. So what you typically do as a defense counsel is um, your first six months you generally represent sailors uh, or officers at administrative hearings, which are essentially employment hearings. And those can be everything for testing positive for cocaine, getting in a bar fight, uh, committing some sort of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And the board hearing will basically decide whether or not to retain or separate the sailor. And so you're representing them uh, as per Navy regulation. Once you get a enough experience... If you want to participate in the court-martial process as a defense att uh, attorney, you can. And unfortunately, a lot of those offenses are sexual assaults. Uh, like in the higher education community, the military is predominantly 18 to 25, and there are quite a few sexual assaults uh, in the military. So that's what that's a lot of Congress has put a big focus on that the past 10 years, and so that's what we are um, either prosecuting or defending a lot of time. But that's not always the case. There There are cases related to you know, assault and theft and all sorts of other interesting, you know, failing to obey an order for for whatever reason. So anyway, you can be a defense counsel and do that, or you could be a trial counsel, which is a lot similar to like being an assistant district attorney, 
reading investigations from NCIS, making recommendations, writing charges, and then actually arguing them in court. Uh, so that's kind of the first uh, two-year experience. There is a um, there's a lot of mentorship and guidance kind of along the way, um, but they've kind of created this structured area, unlike the other JAG cores, where you can kind of have that rotation and you can, you know, get a lot of different Navy experiences for your next assignment. So I think it's a lot of people were upset by it because they wanted to immediately been in the courtroom like five to six years ago. Mm-hmm. But the courts martial uh, process has shifted a little bit. We used to take a lot more people to court martial for minor offenses that would now go to these like separation hearings. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's they've kind of switched. So like when I was a defense counsel in San Diego, you know, I probably had 30, 35 clients over six months. Um, and if it was 10 years ago, maybe um, 25 to 20 out of those 35 would have been court martials. Courts martial, excuse me. It's courts martial, not court martials. I always get that messed up. But anyway, so that is, um, you know, that that's kind of been a, a shift. But you still are practicing a lot of the same advocacy skills. You're up in front of a panel making an argument, doing an opening, doing a closing, cross-examining witnesses, similar skills that you would learn as like an assistant district attorney. So the great thing about it is, is that you get to do a lot of different stuff in your first yeah. two years. And you get to kind of think, you know, do I like doing this legal assistance? I'm forming an attorney-client relationship with you, and I'm trying to help you do X, Y, Z. Or do I like, you know, being on the defense side, representing sailors? I tell people, honestly, out of those, I did four rotations when I was in, and my favorite rotation was being a defense counsel, which I never thought I would be. But it was kind of like you're just, you're fighting for the little guy, you know? against this big, bad Navy. <laughs> and uh, when you get a, like a just result, you know, a sound result for your client, it, it's it's a great feeling as a, as a person who, you know, represents them. And a lot of defense attorneys will say you're representing someone based on the worst day of their life or a poor decision mm-hmm. that they made. Right. And luckily, you know, with a lot of these boards... Um, and, th- and this is the difference between military service members. It's easier to represent them, in my opinion. Again, everything's in my personal capacity. But in my opinion, it's easier to rep- because they have, they have uh, volunteered to like serve their country, right? So they're, there's, there's good deep down in them, right? And you just got to pull that out, yeah. you know, when you're, when you're talking about their, their character. Um, so, you know, and, and if you don't want to participate in the, the court's martial as a defense attorney, you know, you just work that out with your command. But when you become a lawyer or if you're deciding whether or not to be a lawyer, a lot of people have, you know, the issue of can you, you know, can you represent as a defense counsel someone who's accused of murder or someone who's accused of rape? And you, you have to get past that. You're not representing them. You're, you're representing the Constitution. You know, you're representing their rights. You're representing the process. And you're there, to merit, you're there to make sure that the government does its job. You're putting them to proof. Yeah. Putting them to proof, 100%. And a lot of people can't get past that. Um, but it's, and it's difficult. You know, it's, it's something that lawyers grapple with, as well as some other you know, issues in criminal law. But yeah. um, it's definitely, criminal law is, is um, definitely taken at most law schools. I believe it's pretty much required at all law schools. Especially if you want to pass the bar exam. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, you know it's it's a uh, it, it's tough. But bottom line, my first my first rotational tour 
defense was my favorite. Yeah. So, uh, I think a lot of students, when they come and see me initially, are very interested in the idea of international law. And one of the conversations we have to have is, from a private practice perspective, there's there's very little scope for that. But in your role, you've got to be um, pushing into some of those international law issues on a on a really regular basis. So in my role right now, I I, I will say my my primary role is criminal law and senior officer misconduct and ethics. However. When you're so, there's two different things in the Navy. They call them, sea, you know, sea commands or shore commands, or you know, working for the fleet, um, and that's kind of really where you get into the international realm. Um, but it's not every job, and so I think that if you want to be in that space, which it sounds, you know, real sexy, it is a very, it's a small space. So I think students have to go in with those expectations are. There are not a lot of jobs to go around for people to like just to practice international law. Yeah, and so even in the Navy, where you know, we, and we we play it up, there's all these great opportunities that you can do. You kind of have to learn the the basics first. Yeah. Of, hey, you might be 26 coming right out of law school. You think you can just be be like this great Navy JAG advising this 50 year old commander with 25 years experience? It takes time to kind of perfect your craft, and so. And even me, right? I'm a little bit older. I'm almost 36, but I've had experience before law school, but uh, I'm kind of still itching to, to do that stuff. But yeah. a lot of the senior mentors in the JET Corps will say, well, you need to get brilliance and the basics first, right? You need to know how to write that will. You need to know how to advise that difficult ethical issue before we can put you on the front lines where, you know, maybe decisions you make will have serious implications for U.S. policy um, and U.S. service members that are put in harm's way. you got to crawl before you can you walk. you got to crawl. And it, the yeah. law school teaches you a lot, but there's an awful lot that you learn when you start practicing that you, you will not have learned. Right. I think 100% you're, like the first five years out of law school are very important because they kind of direct your path for the future. And... Uh, you know, a lot of times people, when they go work in these big law firms, they'll just get thrown into real estate or they'll get thrown into commercial litigation doing banking. And that's just because they needed a body there. Yeah. So if if anybody is out there who's interested in maneuvering a route, like make sure that that's the practice area that you want to do. Because I do know people who have just fallen into bankruptcy and they're not interested in bankruptcy. They don't enjoy it. That's all. just what they do. And they're just, they're specialized and experienced in, in it. So. So for me, I did take an international law class at Baylor as well as one at uh, the University of Texas. And I did take some national security law classes at Texas A&M. However, um, in my current role right now, I'm not doing any of that. But I will say, I did convince the command. They're sending me to the American Bar Association National Security Law Conference. And I am obtaining a master's degree from the Naval War College um, on national security studies. So I'm like doing those like extra things to prepare me mm -hmm. for when I go to that C command, um, that I'll be prepared. Like when the time comes, it'll be like, Hey, I'm familiar with joint maritime operations. I'm familiar with, you know, the law of the sea. Like I can do this, you know? So we, there, there are definitely specialized sections in the Jack Corps. One of those, they used to call it international operational and all. Now they're just calling it national security mm. and they've kind of looped into the cyber kind of law into that as well. But there's also environmental law, 
which is its own kind of specialty and a, a unique niche. And then also with military justice, there is trial advocacy. So um, we do send officers to those um, to like schools to get their master's degree in those subjects to develop like a specialized skill. Mm-hmm. And then when you go there, like Georgetown has a great uh, national security program, George Washington, there's a lot of schools that do. And you'll do what's called a utilization tour and they will, um, they'll, they'll put you in assignment. You go to school, you learn the specialized skill and then boom, you're in the assignment. It doesn't always work out that way hundred percent, but you, that's kind of, the, that's the general idea. So bottom line, if you want to be involved in like international law and you're a student thinking about this kind of stuff, one, I think the best thing that you can get is international experience. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want to law, go to law school just yet, go join the Peace Corps. Go teach English in you know uh, a foreign country. Uh, go to Europe. Try to work for an NGO, or if you're in law school, try to get an internship at NATO in Belgium. Try to go you know to South America and work for a business down there if you speak uh, you know foreign language, because uh, those are the types of things that will kind of set you apart. Uh, international experiences, learning a foreign language, you know, those types of things that'll kind of get you kind of more involved working at the UN. I know that's super competitive. I did think once when I was in law school about maybe doing an internship with the International Criminal Court and uh, or a couple, uh, where was it? Uh, the one in um, the one in Africa, Tanzania, I believe. Um, anyway, it, it didn't work out. I, I did the education route, but it, it, it you, I think you got to be a savvy about, you know, if you want to do that and then kind of work your way. So for instance, in the JAG Corps, if you're like, Hey, this sounds really great. I want to be a Navy JAG. Well, there is a will if there, you know, there is a will and there's a way, um, we do send, um, first tour judge advocates, that first tour rotational program to Naples, Italy and to Yokosuka, Japan. So if that's what you want to do, those are great assignments because you're still learning the brilliance of the basics in the basics, but you're also in Japan, maybe participating in an exercise. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the, there were two individuals that came with me. Uh, one that I think went to Lewis and Clark, one went to Temple, and we both checked in to Japan together. This was after I was in San Diego for my first tour. Sure enough, after four months, one of those lieutenants got to go to Korea because there was a gap. And so he was thrown into this like Korea command for four months um, you know, when things were kind of heating up yeah, with uh, North Korea. So he was in South Korea, obviously. And, uh, you know, but he wouldn't have had that experience if he was in San Diego like I did. There's diff- definitely different experiences in San Diego. But the other guy, I remember, I think he went to Singapore or Indonesia, and he, per- he was down there for a week at some, like, international law of armed conflict conference, right? So it wasn't related to his official duties, but he was still selected to go for that. So they're really great opportunities for judge advocates um, or JAGs uh, in the Navy to kind of get those types of experiences. So um, if you're interested and it works with your, you and your family, I think those are those are great options when you first join the JAG Corps. Obviously, though, they're competitive, right? So you're, you're fighting with kind of a lot of people that want to go. But some people want to, you know, they want to be in San Diego or, you know, Seattle or Pensacola, wherever they may be. So it sounds like you're, you're less likely to be deployed somewhere in this jag role you're going to be more centralized and you kind of the problem comes to you rather occasionally than you get, yeah. so i would say there's about 950 judge advocates total in the air force and army i believe there's about 1400 each so they're a little bit bigger mm-hmm. but we in the navy also have office of general counsel which is like our civilian counterparts 
And so they do a lot of fiscal law contracts acquisitions, right? The Air Force is acquiring all these big giant planes, right? Or parts where they, you know, and so the lawyers are reviewing that. So we have our civilian counterparts, about 300 attorneys that do a lot of those things. Mm -hmm. Our kind of bread and butter is that military justice, legal assistance, and national security law. So um, we've got probably about, I would say, 50 to 60 judge advocates that are assigned to ships that deploy. So carriers, we've got three JAGs on carriers. They're, so they're with, with the rest of the sailors at sea. They're at sea. They you've, got, you've got one, you have an 06, which is a Navy captain or we'll say Army colonel in charge of the, the, the ship, also known as a skipper. And you have a, a lieutenant commander and a lieutenant, like that's my rank, on that ship. And then you have an admiral in charge of the carrier strike group which is a collection of ships, and there is a lieutenant commander advising that one-star admiral, an 07. Mm. Um, so those three are all assigned. And then there's also other opportunities. So like 7th Fleet. So the carrier strike group reports the 7th Fleet. 7th Fleet then reports the U.S. Pacific Fleet in Hawaii. 7th Fleet is based out of Yokosuka, Japan. But really not. It's based out of a, a ship called the Blue Ridge. And there are three JAGs assigned to that ship. So that's kind of a, another random, unique scenario. We have three JAGs like on sea, wherever the Blue Ridge goes, they go. Um, and sometimes maybe one will stay on shore or whatever. And then you also have uh, what they, we call big decks, which are the big uh, amphibious assault ships that we have Marines come on and then we do expeditionary warfare. We go and think World War II, we take the mm -hmm. island or, you know, take land and they'll come out with their, you know, uh, like cool little boats and land on the land and all that stuff. So there's now one JAG assigned to that kind of collection of ships as well. And that's kind of been a new thing. So there are definitely opportunities. I, I'll just go ahead and tell you, I'm going to U.S. Pacific Fleet, which I'm very excited about. And so that's kind of the top policy level of the, of the kind of administrative and operational pieces. So I'm going to be on a shore command. But there may be opportunities for me to participate in exercises to go on with a ship when we're partnering with a particular nation in the, the Pacific or, or, or whatnot. So um, I'm kind of my role is it's not sea or shore. It's kind of both, I guess. But we're, we're located at Pearl Harbor. Um, and there's there's a I, I, I don't really know yet because I'm not there, but apparently it's a lot of work and, and it's a fast moving pace. And so that's I'm just looking looking forward to that. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, what what kind of I know this is a uh, this is hard to give an answer to, but do you find that a lot of your colleagues do their four years and then transition to, into private practice, or do you find that a lot of people get in and they love it and they stay? That's the second. A lot of people get in, they love it, and they stay. I I only know from my the the first class, the basic lawyer course class in Newport. Uh huh. Oh, man, I only know one, maybe two. That's that's been out. So everybody, I mean, everybody really likes it and loves being a part of the community. It's all about the people you work with and, you know, serving your country. So, uh, you know, it's funny because I have so many people ask me, so you, have you done your your service? And I'm like, I'm still doing it. Still doing it's it. It's yeah. fun. Why? You know, so I, I didn't become a lawyer to just make a lot of money. I became a lawyer to try to make a difference, you know. And if it's uh, helping a sailor at one of those administrative boards, um, when he maybe should have, or she doing something that they, they should have been doing, or if it's helping write somebody a will, uh, to take care of their family or, you know, advising, a my current admiral on a particular policy or initiative. 
that has kind of big impacts. I mean, there's just so many opportunities to serve personally and professionally that right now I don't I don't know why I would get out and join the private sector. I mean, most people in the military also have a second career anyway. So whether yeah. or not you get out at four years, 10 years, or doing a full 20 or 25, you know, if if I do serve 20 to 25 years, I'll still be 55 and and I'll probably want to have a second career doing something interesting and something that will also help take care of my family. You, you uh, hopefully have a lot of living left at 55. Right. And, yeah. and, you know, I, it's not for everyone. You do have to move around. You do have to change jobs. You have to be adaptable, flexible, and it is hard on the family as well. So, you know, you got to just take all those things in, in consideration. Um, but right now I'm loving it and it's, I wouldn't, yeah, I couldn't imagine it any other way. So. Yeah. Well, we're, we're grateful that you're here doing it, and we're grateful for your time. Thanks. Uh, Lieutenant, thank you so much for your time, and, and thanks for giving back to the Baylor community. I, I will just, I'll say one more thing. Yeah, please do. I, if there's anybody out there that wants to talk about the Navy or the JAG Corps, you know, they can always call me, send me an email. If, they, if you want to email me, yeah. I can then send it on. I uh, always to take Lieutenant time Maddox. for Baylor students. So that's pre-law at Baylor. Edu. And if you would like to follow up, then uh, please email, email me at that address and I'll make sure that you get uh, connected with Lieutenant Maddox. All right. Second base. Okay, second base. <laughs> All right.